everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the My Minds podcast. I, as always, am your host, George. And today I'm here with Lucy. Hi, Lucy. How are you? Hello. I'm very well. Thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me to join you today. Um, I'm very excited to speak to you today. I think it's it's going to be such a it's such a different topic. Um, and although the start hasn't been great, I the, at my mind's headquarters we're having some very bad technical issues with Wi-Fi um, recently and microphone. So I don't know if the listeners can tell my mic sounds a bit different. Hopefully, it still sounds okay. But I'm just using my headphones today uh, because my mic has been playing up but I'm very excited to speak to Lucy otherwise known as the dance psychologist um and speaking of which with dance psychology first of all I guess I didn't really um plan this in um in the questions beforehand but what is it your you actually do as your job just so I have a clear understanding yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. I think it's a really important starting place because dance psychology is not um, developed in a way or um, doesn't really have a body in the same way that sports and exercise psychology does. So I am a first and foremost an academic research psychologist who uses my academic and research expertise to educate dancers. I do um, do some coaching and support with dancers, but it's really important and I think a really um, valuable topic. Of conversation to know that dance psychology doesn't have the um the equivalent of bases or the bps for mm. regulating dance psychology at the moment so at the moment you can kind of be either a sports and exercise psychologist or a psychologist working with dancers and i'm a psychologist so a british psychological society chartered psychologist um until earlier on this year i was working first and foremost as a academic um, in a university where I was a senior lecturer in psychology and I was delivering mostly on a BSc psychology and also a BSc in counselling psychology. Um, across the pandemic I made the decision to step away from that and to really work, work on educating dancers so I'm really using that um, kind of academic expertise and my understanding of research to teach predominantly dancers, but also dance teachers, directors of dance schools, choreographers, to help them to understand, first of all, the place of psychology in dance, mm. um, and really importantly to me, the importance of evidence-based decision-making um, and providing better psychological support for dancers. Okay, this is exciting. So this is something I didn't I didn't know this um, before the podcast. And now I feel like I've got so many questions that aren't the questions that I uh, told you about originally. Um, so I guess, first of all, yeah, what what kind of research were you into? What was kind of your your expertise? 
Yeah. Okay. So my PhD was in creativity, which is was not um, really something I was particularly interested in, because I I put myself in the camp of of a, of a ballet dancer, um, and psychologically very much like a ballet dancer as well. So not I, I personally I I didn't really ever see myself as being that creative. But the PhD was really eye opening for me because the PhD was actually looking at um, contemporary dancers and creativity in contemporary dance, which for me completely threw me out of my comfort zone because I had grown up doing ballet. I was very um, familiar with the psychological environment of training in ballet. So I think already um, that's a really valuable point to know that we use the term kind of dance psychology or being a dancer. But I think that there are very different demands on genres of dance. Mm. Um, so my PhD was really about contemporary dancers and their creativity. So it was kind of cognitive psychology I guess you put it into that category of psychology since that I became really interested in taking from that what I know about the contemporary dancers psychological kind of um, constructs and I've now moved into more looking at the opposite of creativity in my mind which is perfectionism um, and now I've been doing a lot of work looking at perfectionism in dancers um, and really importantly the role of the environment and how it's contributing either to a lot of individuality and free will which would hopefully lead to creativity or how it might be contributing towards kind of a suppression of autonomy um, and low creativity and possibly the development of perfectionism so i'm really now interested in the environment and people's perceptions of different teaching styles um, that also then starts to dabble in a little bit of parenting as well mm. um, and the role of the parental influences as well so it's it's really broad what I look at um, and I, I can't say I'd put myself in one category and I guess that's one of the really beautiful things about dance psychology being really early on is that there is very little research in anything so, so as a researcher it's kind of like a, it's like a, going to a buffet you could probably research anything and it's new <laughs> so yeah. yeah a bit of everything <laughs> that, that kind of sounds similar to because i'm i'm working on a phd proposal at the moment with um a researcher friend of mine and, and we're looking to look into like muscularity oriented stuff and it's kind of the same as dance where there's just so little it's kind of like free pickings like just um there's so much so much scope for it um i really liked what you said there about um perfectionism being the opposite of creativity so is is that something that you yeah can you tell us a bit more about that like what you mean exactly by that yeah, so if you think about a creative person, um, so a creative person is somebody who is needs to be um, quite open, quite non-judgmental, quite, so what, one of the, even defining creativity is really complicated. So it took me about six months of my PhD to get to the bottom of what it was. But essentially to be creative is about kind of producing lots of ideas. So coming up with lots of ideas and then having the confidence to know which one of those are worth pursuing, which ones you should get rid of. And then on top of that, there is a kind of social element of it because you also need the kind of the confidence to put your ideas forward. So if you think about a dancer um, in a kind of creative context, what typically happens is that the choreographer might give them an activity or a task and say, you know, you've got some time to work with this particular image or stimulus. And I want you to go away and, and create. 
So that requires the ability to think really openly, to think what's called divergently, and then to have the confidence to know which ideas are novel and then say, when you're back together, this is my idea, I want to put it out there for you. So it requires, I guess, thinking really broadly and confidence. So those are two really important things. When you look at perfectionism, actually people who have perfectionistic concerns tend to be um, more concerned about putting ideas out there, maybe fear of judgment. Um, and also if we think about, particularly if you think about ballet, for example, if you just imagine a row of ballet dancers, female ballet dancers, they kind of look the same. They aren't necessarily encouraged to have individuality, to express themselves as an individual. And actually in ballet, that, that row of dancers is called the corps de ballet. They're actually kind of taught the opposite. So be the same as one another, um, look like one another. The aim is that they're going to all move in unison and be this kind of beautiful kind of um, mass moving as one. Mm. So you, that could be one of the reasons why we see perfectionism in ballet dancers, that kind of emphasis on looking the same, being the same, this kind of aesthetic. But also at the same time, it's not really encouraging free thinking or kind of working out how you want to move in your own way or problem solving. It's kind of following tradition and following orders. So that's where, that's where I'm really interested now because even when I reflect on myself, I'm very good at following orders, but not very good at coming up with ideas. And I think um, when you look at the career of a dancer, there's, you know, to be creative would extend the career, um, to, to feel really strongly about your creativity, to be able to move away from performance into choreography or a creative job. Um, that would be, you know, opening up the possibilities for a longer career in dance. Mm. So yeah, that's that, I don't know. I just find it really fascinating psychologically that it's almost like two very different pathways that you're training in those two, two different strategies. Yeah, that is, it is very interesting. It reminds me, I, um, I developed a training course and I teach it with the charity First Steps ED. You might have heard of them before. Um, and in that, I talk about perfectionism because I'm basically teaching about like athletes' mental health and, and athlete well-being. And um, I talk about the, the difference between kind of positive perfectionism and the idea of there being like dysfunctional perfectionism and how it becomes an issue when there's things like self-critical behavior or that excessive rigidity. And it sounds mm -hmm. almost like, you know, you talk, when you explained that um, row of dancers, that chord of, that, I can't remember what you said it was called, or something called. Chord of ballet. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, there's going to be a lot of that in this podcast. I don't know if you know like, the thing that you said, um, that, that sounds to me, you know, that that is breeding. You know, it has to be rigid. It has to stick to this exact way. And also, you know, it seems to, um, yeah, if you are standing out, you're wrong. And that's going to bring that self-critical behaviour in. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I did, I've done some research, um, qualitative research, and it was that kind of, um, that those kind of comments being made and shared that there was this kind of, um, yeah, fear of being criticised for stepping out of line. But interestingly, in that research as well, the, the participants talked about kind of active steps to not stand out as well. So, for example, deciding one day we're all going to wear this particular leotard so we look the same to avoid that kind of critique. So it just really seems to contrast with the, the concept of, of being creative. But, yeah, it's kind of one is very much about rigid thinking and one is about open thinking and, and and being able to actively get past the block 
which is what a lot of creativity is about, isn't it? It's that kind of ability to be like, I'm stuck, but I can get through this. Whereas perfectionism potentially could be holding back from that. Yeah, that is, that is really interesting. And um, I also wanted to ask you about, you mentioned coaching styles earlier, and that's something I'm really interested in because I'm kind of constantly um, battling with the question of how can, you know, I, I work a lot in kind of athlete and exercise and mental health. How can someone push to, to be great or to be, you know, brilliant and, and successful in, in a sport, but also maintain their well-being? And how can a coach do that? Like, what are, what are the kind of coaching styles that you've looked into and how do they seem to affect dancers? So there's one um, that, that's been discussed quite a lot in sports psychology and researched quite a lot. Um, and is also the one that comes out quite a lot in dance as being the kind of preferable one. Um, mm. in, in the dance research, what the, the body of work that's been done so far, it predominantly looks at kind of health and wellbeing outcomes. So if you have different kinds of teaching styles or to what degree does this teaching style relate to perfectionism or burnout, et cetera. So the one that's come out is the same thing that we see in sport. And it's known as, I don't know if you know this, an autonomy supportive teaching style. So it's where that um, teacher or coach is facilitating the, the learner or the sports person or the dancer to have a voice um, rather than being told all the time it's done like this or you're wrong for doing it that way. But it's more associated with kind of facilitating the, the learner to proactively ask questions um, to give feedback to reflect maybe kind of having time for reflection and then just in practice you know inviting them to have more of an input into coaching for example so in dancing you know I've often talked to dancers about how could we put this into practice like how can we how can a teacher be autonomy supportive even just things like when you do a ballet class it's always to the same piece of music if you're just training your technique you know, offering the student, what, what would you like to dance to today? So it's allowing them to also have that degree of kind of ownership and, and voice in what they're doing. Um, and I said to you that I'd, um, I'm, a, I'm kind of starting to become quite interested in parenting. And it's exactly the same with parenting, that you can also have an autonomy supportive parenting style as well. So you're promoting that kind of sense of what do you want to do rather than this is the one way to do it, now do it. Um, mm. So it's as, as a as a teaching style, if you think about that, just thinking back to both creativity and perfectionism, hopefully that is going to increase creativity because you're saying you have a voice, use it, you feel free to express yourself. But on the flip side as well, it's associated with less perfectionistic concern because it's less imposing of there is only one right way to do this. So it's creating that freedom for, for different ways to, to do things. Um, so it might be that even, you know, a, a very strongly perfectionistic individual in that environment where the person is creating that supportive place where they're kind of saying, you know, it's all right to make a mistake. It can, it can go wrong and that's OK, that they might be able to better manage their perfectionism, too. Mm, it, it, it kind of as you're saying that it reminds me of I think there's an issue in in the the sporting world of of coaches almost seeing them or behaving in like a godlike way of this is the way I've done it for 30 years you know some of my athletes are great and they've done amazingly so if you don't like the way that I do it you're the problem um like if, if this doesn't mm -hmm. fit to how you train or how you eat or how you whatever you're the problem is that the same in the the dance world do you think 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've I've met lots of dancers that have really low self-worth because of that as well. So yeah, that's that's a really kind of normal um experience, very sadly. But I think as well because the trouble is because so many young people are interested in sports or dance that they that you know coaches can still get away with saying that because they know that there are, you know, you might be auditioning and you've got a thousand people and ten places. So it's it's that sense of um, tradition and you're not kind of valuable enough because this is the way it's always been done. It's going to be really hard to overcome that and change that um, whilst there is, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, there's a long way to go with changing that. And it, it's really interesting that you say that because I think in dance, we think that sport is way ahead or that dance is so much worse than everything else. But the more that I speak with sports psychologists, it's really becoming clear to me that we have a really warped sense of <laughs> how forward thinking sport is um, when people tell me things like that too. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had, I won't mention any names, but I've had conversations recently with some really high level coaches and who was, who, you know, have contacted me because they've seen my work on athlete mental health and um, just to have conversations about it. And they, you know, they're saying that, I've, you know, a couple of them said that they're, they're almost seen as the rogues because they're thinking about bringing the like allowing their athletes to make decisions in training and to try and support their mental health and and they're almost seen as like these you know that like say like rogues like these these like outlandish coaches who are oh, like the you know crazy tim not tim is a natural name but you know like you know they're, they're the ones who um who are kind of yeah going over the line and it's and it's strange and it's it's weird, isn't it? I suppose it's just a it's a thing we have to break down in the actual culture. Uh, and in my personal opinion, I think it should start at the kind of um, grassroots. So you know, the the, the with the young young generation, I think um, we need to start. Maybe it's the the courses that are taught to coaches, or you know, I'm developing some training tools for personal trainers and things, and um, I think educating them. To, to treat young people and people who first come into it in this way of like, you know, I'm going to guide you, but your body is so different to everyone else's body. There's no way my plan is going to fit everyone. So you need, we need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that I speak to a lot of dance teachers who, who, who work kind of at the, what I'd call local village hall level kind of teaching lo local young children that are so desperate to know how to deal with this as well. But there isn't necessarily that um, transfer of the academic research and the knowledge from psychology into the practice. Um, but I, I, again, I don't really know how it is so much with sport, but in dance, one of the big problems that comes with that kind of early, early um, intervention about changing things and changing coaching or teaching is that in dance, there are still many, many dance teachers teaching young children with no qualifications at all. Um, so those dance teachers who are going through um, kind of a regulatory body, so there are two big ones that I can speak positively of, the Royal Academy of Dance and the Imperial Society of Teachers of Dancing. They are now making it kind of embedded into those teaching qualifications that you learn about various aspects of dance science. So psychology and kind of physical fitness as well. But if you are not a dance teacher who is qualified and has been through one of those kind of courses where they're Im implementing that, then it's, it's possible that you know very little um, about how to address that. 
So, and, you know, I even speak with dance teachers who've had that really good introduction for it from the RAD or the ISTD, but then in practice, it's all very different, isn't it? When you've got, uh, you know, a, a room full of children that you're trying to support. So I think there's so much more work that needs to be done there. And one of the reasons why I, I kind of left my job and wanted to do more work like that as well is because I think that that's how we can change the culture um, by every young child that enters into a dance class and grows up in an environment where their physical and mental health is discussed and supported, they then go into the industry and start changing it. So the, the kind of more people who we change younger, the more I think that there will be kind of progress and change. Because um, I think a lot of people in the industry um, are still kind of possibly perpetuating the more negative side of, around mental health. But if we can grab onto <laughs> those young people coming through, like that's the future. I think if if every child grows up in an environment where they've their teacher has to know something about mental health, then it will change with time, I would hope. Yeah, um, I, I can't speak for, for the whole like sporting side and stuff, but I know that you know, at least from the the conversations that I've had with people, you know, on and off the the podcast, it seems that that you know there are some things there to to talk about mental health and to talk about or to kind of teach about them, and and, and you know there are things coming out teaching about eating disorders, and again, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm developing some stuff myself. I almost I still think that there's there's that um, it's almost like a taboo, like it's it's seen as a as a risk to start to implement that um because I, I suppose it's again a conversation i had recently with a, with a coach um saying how it's it's scary to start to to consider it i think i think for two twofold one because what if my athlete what if if i start allowing my athlete to do more autonomous things what if they start to perform worse and two, if I accept that my athlete could have these mental health issues and that um, then I'm also partly accepting that I'm influencing my athlete in a negative way and that's uncomfortable and, and that's not nice. Um, mm -hmm. Do you, uh, like, and it sounds like it's the same in, in dance. Do you, do you think it's something that um, I guess we have to somewhat accept that there's going to be this risk? And, and that, you know, if we accept it, then we can look at tackling it. Well, absolutely. And I would say if we all really self-reflect, you know, even in our personal relationships that we have, we all do things that will at one point or another um, damage another person's mental health or impact them psychologically. So I think I, under I understand, but I think to reflect on that and actually then use that as an identif identifying, okay, what is it that I could possibly be doing and how could I do this differently? I mean, I have met, I'm really fortunate because I've met some really fantastic people in dance and the performing arts who are now almost volunteering. Like I want to, I want to change. I want you to tell me what I'm doing. You know, sometimes I just go and watch and they say, what could I, what could I be doing differently? And I'll just write down notes of kind of things that have been said and you could have phrased it differently. Um, or here are the ways that you could maybe sh shape that up a bit differently. So, yeah, I think it does take a lot of <laughs> self-acceptance, but I think we're at a time where in society where we're probably 
able to move past that now we should be able to but I, I I mean I guess it's a generational thing right as well isn't it that maybe our generation is really open to it we've been exposed to it quite a lot and we're probably quite open about mental health generally um but yeah it's 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 really really difficult but we all make errors work we all don't we're none of us are perfect so it's about learning and growing isn't it and if it's framed in that kind of professional development way it's not a blame game it's not saying you know you're you're damaging or you're harmful it's how could you support health and well-being better yeah exactly um and that's the the difference there and i, I people listen to the podcast who listen regularly will know i speak about this all the time but um it's that idea of seeing it instead of in a pathogenic manner of you know there are sick people and fine people and we need to fix the sick people like that's not your role as a coach your role is to to see it on that spectrum in a salutogenic way of you know, my job is to stop those stresses coming in and to try and put in some kind of supporting system um it's not yeah, you, yeah it's not your job just to go you, you're fixed like yeah. And I, I think that's really important because so much of, you know, so many of the people that I speak to feel that it's on them. Um, and sometimes when I speak to dance teachers, they'll kind of the questions will be like, what can I do if someone discloses a mental health problem or how can I change my class so that it supports if, if a student has um, this or that? And I often think, well, actually, you know, there is a limit on what you can do, because it's also really important that we only take responsibility for the part of the life that the, the section of that person's life that we are in as well so I think a lot of on the other side you have a lot of very caring very supportive dance teachers who want to fix um, mental health problems and I completely agree my advice is always actually no we need to encourage that student or that young person to seek the appropriate professional help and then your role is when they come in here you're creating a safe environment for them to live with a mental health problem or a mental illness where actually you are allowing them to they have a little bit of an escape from that and you're promoting good well-being but you're not fixing their mental health problems through your your you know your teaching um, but I think that again that's a lack of I guess mental health literacy or understanding about what mental health is that people think that it's actually really interesting when people say use the term mental health that we associate that with a problem but actually it's a good thing right the presence of mental health is good um so I think so much of the work that I'm doing lately is just trying to explain that idea of that continuum and that we're not in camps of you're, you're happy or you're sad or you're ill or you're well but that that idea that just small acts each day can push you slightly up towards that more positive end of well-being yeah and I think I think that um that way of looking at it makes um the kind of feelings of negative mental health or the, the kind of recovery process more understandable as well or at least um yeah it's also very good for in recovery because as we know recovery isn't linear and it means that there are going to be kind of um moments where we we you know have little um, I don't know what you call them, like peaks and troughs, isn't it? You feel the better for a few days and you feel worse for a few days and it's not just going to constantly get better and better. And when you see it in that spectrum, um, you see it that, you know, you're still just moving across the spectrum. It's not you've you've come out of the healthy and you're back into the unhealthy and everything's gone to crap. You know, you are, um, you're, you're just, you know, you're still just on that continuum. It's just been a bad day. You can move back up. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also so valuable to look at it in that daily way as well, that one day you might be here and the next day you're back and then you're back up again, rather than this kind of um, labelling people as you live with this. And, you know, I just I think that's a really healthy way to look at it. And that's not to undermine that a percentage of people will be living with, um, you know, mental illness in a quite a disabling, severely difficult kind of way of being but we just need to ensure that when people are participating in things like dance or sport or performing arts that it is it, that it's moving them in the in the right direction I guess regardless of where they're at whether they're living with a mental illness whether they're plodding about life whether they're doing really well that everybody's moving in that kind of correct upwards direction mm, yeah I agree completely so what what do you think organizations should be doing or are they actually doing anything at all in dance yeah so the starting place with answering that question is to know that dance is um i guess quite different to sports for example where sports might be regulated or have a governing body um so in dance there isn't currently a governing body for dance um and in answering this question i guess i'm going to be really biased to um classical dance and contemporary dance because that's where I work um, mostly. So every dance form, um, dance genre is going to have different degrees of support available. Um, in terms of ballet, um, kind of classical ballet, I know that the um, the people who regulate dance teaching degrees so to, or dance teaching qualifications are now implementing and have been for quite some time education around dance psychology um, and little bits around mental health. So they, they are ensuring that newly qualified teachers are qualifying with some awareness of mental health, but also things like developmental psychology and awareness of how the, the child growing up in dance is developing as well. So there is definitely work being done there. Um, and I think the other big um, organization at least in the UK that's doing a lot of work is One Dance UK. So they're a charity that kind of advocates and represents the dance workforce in the UK. Everything from dance teachers through to professionals um, supporting people with retirement. So they are very, very um, vocal and supportive of dancers psychological health and well-being so they offer lots of resources in terms of a database of, of recommended individuals whether that's um, practitioners like counsellors and clinical psychologists or educators like me to to come in but they're also kind of um, uh, kind of campaigning as well for, for better support. So for example, one of the research projects that I've done recently has been in collaboration with them to try to understand these questions about um, access to support. But it's, it's difficult because at the moment it feels really like it's up to the individual dance company or dance school to, to first of all be aware of the need for the mental health support and then decide whether that's a priority for them whether they've got the finances for that so one thing I guess I dream of in the future is that there would be a kind of a gold standard of this is the expectation of what you should have in your company um, or even um, to ensure that people know where to outsource because I think often a lot of the questions that I get and some of the work that I've done has just been trying to help people to understand what sort of um, kind of advice and support is out there so it's really sporadic and I cannot I can't speak for other dance forms as well um, I work a little bit in Irish dance and a little bit in hip-hop but 
I mean, hip hop, for example, it doesn't um, have those kind of um, teacher qualifications in the same way. So it's all going to be really different. Also, just depending what kind of dance genre you're talking about. Um, so mm. I think lots of room for improvement in terms of creating a gold standard um, of what you should be offering. Mm. And so so in, in regards to the, so I remember you mentioned this um, earlier in the pod as well, and it, it made me think of this question. Um, because in, in sport, we have the kind of um, like zero gravity sports, I think they refer to them as the you know, ones where you should be propelling yourself through the air or, you know, so things like running or um, jumping. And they tend to be linked with expect, like um, specifically disordered eating and eating disorders and things like that. Is there like, you know, are there some certain um, forms of dance that seem to put people people at more risk or at least correlate more with people who have higher symptoms of, of things yeah i think so again research is really patchy on this um i'd like to be able to kind of give you some statistics or evidence and research but research is quite patchy on it because my gut instinct and my feeling is that ballet dancers are at greater risk because the aesthetic demand is particularly strong in terms of um adhering to like the long lean physique um but actually we the trouble is with kind of dance science research or any sort of dance research into body image or eating disorders or anything like that is that it has also predominantly only been done on ballet dancers so there is evidence of a high prevalence of poor body image of um, eating related concerns in dancers um, but that is always ballet dancers and very little research into kind of statistics or any data that we could actually say that ballet dancers are at greater risk than, for example, a musical theatre performer. We just don't have the data to be able to say that. I think ballet has the most obvious um, set of predispositions. So um, that kind of expectation to be very, very slim, um, that kind of dainty physique that we all think of when we think of a ballet dancer. But when you look at the kind of environmental um, uh, kind of maybe predictors of things like disordered eating, uh, they're present in all dance forms. So a musical theatre performer, for example, also has to wear tight clothing, also is expected to, for a female to be picked up, for a man to be kind of lean enough to pick her up. Mm -hmm all of them will be exposed to mirrors quite a lot. So there's quite a bit of evidence that mirror exposure could be contributing to changes in eating um, and body image. So it's it's actually, there's just, I, that was a really long winded way of saying, I can't give you a definitive answer, um, but there are gonna be slightly different demands in each one, but there are consistent demands across everything. Yeah, and I, I kind of, I guess I, I um presumed that would be somewhat of the answer that we just we don't know enough yet because i know you mentioned earlier there's it's quite quite um new research that's coming out uh, but that's really interesting about the i'm going to kind of um go off on a tangent here because I, I but just something that i find really interesting is that the idea of mirror exposure because you know a lot of a lot of what i'm interested in is is people in gyms and people you know personal trainers and the people who train and obviously you know the in a gym especially in like the weight section, the entire wall is just a mirror. And I, I imagine it's a set, well, at least I did a little bit of dance when I was younger, when I, um, and I remember being in the dance studio and the entire wall was mirrors as well. So is that, is that the case? 
Yeah, I'd say again, I don't know what percentage, but it's it's kind of common common practice to have a mirrored wall, at least one of the four walls mirrored. Um, and that's from your local, you know, like, um, in fact, actually, I think when I started ballet, I, it wasn't in a mirrored studio, but I moved to a better dance school when I was about seven mm-hmm. and I and I was in a mirror. But so, so some children will be exposed to that mirror from two years old. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Two or three times a week. So yeah, sorry. What what is it that the research kind of says that does, or at least seems seems to do? So it's basically indicating that people have less positive um, body image perceptions if they've been training for longer in a um, so more exposure to mirrors decreases positive body image perceptions, possibly increases negative ones, and then there's been some research that compares. Um, across disciplines of dance because it's less common in contemporary dance to use the mirror so you might be in a mirrored studio but they'd be covered up because contemporary dance is more about a subjective experience and there's more room for individuality in the movement so it's, it's less about how it looks objectively um and then you you tend to find there's some research but again a handful of papers that are starting to suggest that contemporary dancers don't have as negative body image perceptions as ballet dancers but i say all of this and it makes me a little bit squirmy because none of it's founded on a strong evidence base at all to know that Mm. um yeah and it's interesting because i actually again just did um some research in um cruise ship performers with a a student whose master's project i supervised called jenna jenna chin and um jenna had been a cruise ship performer and i knew really very little about that and as far as we know this is the first paper that's ever been published about the demands of being a cruise ship performer and my mind was completely blown by what she was telling me about the environment and expectations and um uh what the data was telling us from from the dancers that she interviewed as well so again you've got this whole um kind of uh, industry again that's that's built on things like weigh-ins um casting based on basically pre-existing costumes so do are you small enough to fit in the costume if not you're not you don't get through the audition rather than you're talented let's make a costume to fit you so um yeah there's just endless um kind of like what i'd call environmental triggers i suppose going on that are just part of the traditions and practices of how dance and the performing arts works that's actually blown me away that so they so they have weigh-ins and like they they'll have a costume already and then if you don't fit it you're not good enough yeah so yeah essentially if you don't fit the costume then rather than creating a new costume they'll find a body that fits in the costume already at the auditions yeah that's just horrendous like that's Mm -hmm. that's yeah that's not something i'd ever even thought about and it's kind of i feel like it's opening my eyes to yeah because i like when you're on holiday and you stuff and you see the dancers of and it's it's the thing as well isn't it i don't know if this plays into a um a role at all but when you you know when you at least from i, I know very little about dance but from what i see you always kind of have to put on this happy face and you have to like you know, exude happiness and whilst you're doing it um so i think you just see them and think oh they're all they're all buzzing like they're this they're having a great time but you don't think about these things that are going on in the background that could be affecting people yeah, which I find is exactly that, which is what I think is very fascinating about um, dancers and about their psychological well-being, because so many dancers, most of the dancers that I meet and get to have these conversations with absolutely love performing. 
So I think in most cases, you know, unless there's someone who is really troubled by performance anxiety, in most cases, most of the people that I work with adore performing. They love the act of dancing. And that is real when they're going out and performing. They really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But in amongst all of that, it's just really demanding, psychologically exceptionally demanding. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because we all look at the, the kind of the grace and the beauty and the joy of what it is to watch people performing. But there's so little awareness of of all that's going into leading to that moment. Yeah, yeah. It's, I suppose it's um, somewhat similar with sport. But yeah, it's just that fact that, yeah, the, the whole presentation of dance is like we're you know, excited and, and, you know, I mean, I imagine even some dancers, maybe not, but yeah, it's all, it's all, it's, it's an act, isn't it? To some degree, you, know, you are putting on a, a performance and it's and that in yeah. some way it's different to sport. Um, Cause in sport, you kind of, obviously you do your sport and you are performing, but you're not like trying to show yourself in a certain way, at least not with a lot of them. So that's quite an interesting difference there. Yeah, that is interesting actually. And I've never really, thought about that I mean that would be a really interesting kind of piece of research about how do people because I, I do a lot I, I you know I, I'm quite vocal about we should be warming up psychologically but I've never really thought about warming up for the role or warming mm. up for different sorts of pieces um yeah that's really interesting it's a good observation <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you you're um, a dance psychologist <laughs> <laughs> uh first day first day on the job um <laughs> yeah so yeah that, that's that's really cool and you mentioned there that you um you know, your your clients and, and the kind of stuff you do could you kind of give me a rundown on the kind of stuff you you work with clients on mm. um so most of what i do is kind of educational workshops ranging from kind of about five students sometimes like a hundred students and it's usually just almost like teaching them, usually in the first workshop, just introducing them to the idea of what mental health is and awareness of how they're using different terms and then also what psychology is. And I'm really passionate about them understanding the um, kind of the importance of evidence and research. Um, and I always start from the place of thinking about like, where do you get your health advice from? Because I think at the moment it's also really easy to get it from social media or somewhere where they're not necessarily aware of who's behind that information being put out and then I guess I kind of most of the work that I do is based on um, what I'd call very traditional kind of sports psychology topics so things like self-confidence perfectionism comes up a lot performance anxiety motivation is a huge one and has been hugely because of the pandemic mm. and then I guess I get a lot of kind of solve the problems where people bring to me um, like we've got this going on in our performing arts school or our dancers are we see this issue at the moment is there something that you could come in and educate them around so it's always kind of underpinned by I guess like a, a lecture and a interactive then discussion around how does that make you feel in practice what could be different what skills do you need but I really believe in educating I think that that is so powerful to help them to understand um the take themselves out of the picture i guess to understand that if this then this kind of mapping out out these kind of human interactions of these are the things that will likely develop when you're exposed to this or that or kind of yeah helping them helping dancers to understand the dance environment better through mm. education yeah and that's something that i like i i 100% believe myself and I feel like I want to have conversations with you about some of the stuff that I'm doing but I don't want to say it on the podcast so maybe when we finish the podcast we can talk about that but um, yeah, 
I yeah, I I 100% agree with that. And I think you know, you mentioned earlier that kind of mental health literacy. And for, for people who listen to podcasts, they might not know that term. That's kind of, and uh, I hope I'm saying this right now. You might scold me if I'm not, but it's basically the idea of understanding what the men- mental health is and understanding how how it affects you and, and what it actually is. And then that tends to link to increased help seeking behavior and also increased overall well being in general. Um, and being able to, you know, again, I'm I am more focused on the kind of gym community and the sporting community, and I think especially with the narrative around exercise itself, that it's great for you. And if you do it, you're going to be happy and blah, 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 blah. People sometimes think, and at least my personal experience, I thought I go to the gym six days a week. And, you know, I, like people who go to the gym are, are like stoic, strong, happy. Like there's no way I can, this could be a mental health issue. Like, there's no way this could be an, a, that kind of issue. And it, and it took, because of that really did, um like put a barrier in place for me actually seeking help because i just thought it, it can't be like this that's not what people like me go through um so yeah i think that education is really important do you think that's the same in dancers do you think there is that stigma there that you dancers wouldn't have those issues or i don't know i think no i well my experience of speaking to dance students and kind of the younger generation of dancers i don't think that there is a i don't think that they perceive a stigma i think most of them i i feel they're very open about sharing that they feel that way um i don't think so but i think what's really interesting what you've just said about um that kind of if you you think if you go to the gym six days a week that's healthy and that's one of the really important things that I like to talk about is like where does where does your mental health fit in health overall um and can you be healthy if you're looking after your body and you're eating well and you're drinking water and you're sleeping and doing all the things that your body needs to do to be a really good dancer are you healthy if you're not looking at your mental health as well so I think it's so good to think where does it fit into all of that and then sometimes I just create that conversation of well those decisions that you're making about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what what part of your body, you know, it's your brain, right? That's driving those decisions. So how could you not be also thinking about your brain and your mind in that? Um, so I think it's so nice to look at that kind of overall in any community where you're using your body to understand that the mind drives every decision that you're making about why am I going six times? What does it make me feel when I go six times? How do I feel if I skip number five and six? That's all related to your mental health, um, mm. which is why I personally, I think that mental health kind of should come before physical health because your mental health drives your physical health in my world as a psychologist. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it, it, is, it is really, that's what, I really like that point, the idea that it should be, because even, even if you're, if you are purely performance and purely, kind of physical driven like why wouldn't you focus on your mental well-being first anyway because that's just going to push this is again it's the thing that I, I'm, I try and have conversations with coaches about is and the issue again is there's there's so little research on it at least as far as I'm aware anyway but if you look after your athletes well-being you're probably in the long term going to get better athletes but no one's tried it yet so it's really hard for people to to want to 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 do it because what if they're the person who tries it and then it cocks up um that's yeah that's yeah but I guess the whole field of sports science and and you know elite elite sport those people that make it really really far in their sport whether it's you know 
the England football team that are going to play again like how could they have got there without the contribution of the physical input and the psychological input like I was reading an article the other day about the role of the sports psychologist in getting in that performance out of England on Saturday like would would you be able to be that good at your sport if you completely neglected your mental and physical health um so it it kind of makes no sense to me when people think that you could that it's not necessary to talk about it because if you look at any kind of world class athlete they have that support they're thinking about it so we should all be you know even if we're not world class even if we're going to the local village hall to to just learn to do ballet for an hour every saturday morning it still should play a role in it so yeah, and yeah. Not, not not only does it you know obviously you're kind of decreasing the stress levels and things and, and you're making you feel more relaxed and, and having that kind of recovery aspect but also you know if you're if you're over exercising due to these mental health issues or you know not eating in a way that you need to and um, you know, even just looking at it as a purely like you know in like i did my master's in exercise nutrition so even looking at it in that kind of you know um periodized nutrition plan or even a periodized training plan you know, there's it within that is you build up and then you have deloads or you know you 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 have like rest moments um, and if an athlete feels that they can't skip a training session or can't do a a lighter session then you're, you're not gonna your athletes aren't going to progress as much as you want them to because they're not going to be able to periodize properly absolutely yeah yeah um, and completely the same psychologically if you're reaching that point of burnout or if you're kind of reaching frustration or dissatisfaction with your body why do we push people to carry on going and again I guess there isn't enough research that looks at things longitudinally like definitely not in dance like there's very little longitudinal research to know what happens over the course of a, of a professional dance company and their you know their training into their performance period but it's completely the same idea psychologically as well, isn't it? The longer you keep pushing for something without taking a break, the longer, you know, the quicker you're going to get to burnout. Um, and if you're looking at it from the kind of talent development perspective or wanting, you know, world-class performance, then you lose your your talent as well. Mm. Um, so it, it just it just makes sense really to talk about it and to consider those things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I imagine when I release this podcast, I'm going to get, some dancers listening in um, maybe maybe for the first time if, if that is you welcome thank you for thank you for tuning in um, what would you say is um maybe the the one lesson you would love for them to take away from this podcast or the one thing that they should they should consider i would like every dancer and this requires a degree, I think this is like a really requires a degree of maturity and, and reflection on it. But I I think that there are a lot of um rightly so quite frustrated dancers who are feeling disappointed about the lack of support out there. Um and I would like people to try to take that and use it as a reason to be part of the change because it's very easy to say people aren't looking after us, there's no support out there, but actually if you can kind of turn that into let's make a let's be a voice let's you know I might go and learn myself something you know go and do a course in nutrition or do a course in psychology I think that this generation of dancers who are frustrated and who are maybe quite vocal about how they're feeling if they can channel that into being part of the change that will create the change if we can have an entire kind of population now of dancers who are learning about health and well-being in that scientific way 
um, and pushing for change and bringing that change into teaching practices or if they're choreographing, making it part of their own values as a choreographer. I think that that's how things are going to change. Amazing, amazing. Um, so Lucy, I ask every guest on this podcast three final questions that aren't questions because none of them have a question mark at the end. Still working on a title. Um, <laughs> question one is... A person, real or fictional, who inspires you? Okay, so this is um, this is really inspired by my lockdown viewing. Um, so the person I'm inspired by is a she's a um, detective in a Swedish um, slash Danish crime drama called The Bridge. Have you seen it? <laughs> I haven't. I've heard of it though. So good. So she's called Saga Noren and she is the lead female detective in it. I adore her because she is so the opposite of the way that females are represented in crime dramas. It's kind of a role gender reversal where she is um, very cold, um, has a lot of inappropriate relationships and just bins the man off the day after. Um, and I think probably she's meant to have um, be representative um, of someone with Asperger's. And then the male character is the kind of homely one that's running home to his parents. So I, I really like that. But I just really like her um, commitment to her job in a weird way. I can see some of myself in it, her kind of tenacity and commitment. But I just really like that representation of her, um, of a, a strong female who is likable in every way that um we don't traditionally like women for so that that i just absolutely fell in love with her i just think she's awesome <laughs> amazing amazing i'm gonna have to watch that program now yeah um yeah, it's one of those ones that every- <laughs> i'm gonna say it's one of those ones that everyone tells you to watch and then you go okay i'll watch it and then you just there's, just, there's, there's like seven of them and you just can't like get into them but i will yeah. watch it and the good thing about it is is actually i found so because I was going through some stress and things like that myself recently, I found that I've got really into watching these Scandinavian programs because you have to concentrate so hard on the subtitles that you can't be affected by whatever is making you stressed. So actually, I'm probably recommending avoidance, which is not a good thing for a psychologist <laughs> to say. <laughs> but I found them really good for me, just like for my mental health, just to sit down and watch something where you're really engrossed in the story and reading the subtitles because you can't pick your phone up. <laughs> you can't do anything else because you're focused on the subtitle. <laughs> That's that, Yeah, that make, makes sense. I um, I actually have some family who live in Sweden. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm somewhat used to the Swedish language I, I understand very very minute um bits of it uh, but yeah maybe, maybe i should maybe i should watch it so i can try and learn some more swedish and i can speak to them and surprise them yeah That'd be a good thing actually part of my probably my strange um obsession with that program and with that character is that my i'd say mentor and person that's kind of really been kind of my kind of like angel on my shoulder helping me along with things is a Swedish um, sports psychologist called Sanna Norden Bates. And I've spent quite a bit of time in Sweden with her. So I'm a little bit in love with Scandinavia in general, in general and that way of life. And, oh, no and way. Her, her mentorship of me is just like in such a non-British way as well. I don't know. It's just really, I just really like Scandinavia. <laughs> Whereabouts yeah. in Sweden did you go? She's in she's Stockholm, so I've only ever been to Stockholm, but I'm yeah. really keen to see more when when allowed to. <laughs> yeah, I've been to Stockholm and I've been to Gothenburg as well. Uh, Gothenburg, uh, really lovely, really lovely. Um, so anyway, the bridge, the bridge is in Malmo, so I need to go there next. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next one. Um, 
<laughs> question two, or not question, whatever it is, um, is a phrase, a, a phase in your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking back, you know the positives came from it. Yeah. So that for me was definitely a year ago. Um, I went through quite a lot of personal changes, a, a breakup of a really serious relationship, um, kind of selling a house, everything being really up in the air. Um, and that for me was like, everything was pulled from under my feet. I thought I had, all, you know, you dream of all of that security and everything that's suddenly going to be there for you. And I think for about six weeks, I thought, I, I you know, I thought I, I'm never going to be able to even breathe again, let alone live mm. my life, <laughs> you know, and you're just completely like, you know, confused. But actually now I realized I teach so much about resilience and about kind of managing adversity that I probably learned more lessons from that than the rest of my life put together. Um, and it really, um, I'd say consolidated for me all the things that I teach about how to look after your mental health, about seeking friendship, about picking up new hobbies, about being open, about showing your vulnerability, about saying, you know, I've made mistakes. Um, so I think for me, that was my first opportunity where I was forced to do everything that I tell other people to do so it was really difficult but from it came complete like revolution of me <laughs> um yeah. on and of my friendships and, and everything around me so I think it's a it's my friends just look at me and like how did you get through that how on earth did you pick yourself back up so well um but yeah I think that's for me has consolidated everything that I believe about psychology and like kind of like right what do I know about what I should do <laughs> and I did it <laughs> that's amazing and that, that's yeah I, I I love that question it's my it's my favorite one of the final three because I always think it's it's amazing to hear people you know go through such you know difficult situations and come out and say actually some really good things came from that and I always think you know people listening at home if you're in that shit situation and you're listening to this and maybe this is your bit of avoidance you can hear Lucy say this and and you know it does get better and you can get things from it and um, yeah I think that's, that's such a really important thing thank you for sharing that yeah that's fine um question three is the final one a phrase to live by so yeah I knew you were going to ask me this and I thought right I should think of someone really um you know, like a, a psychologist or a philosopher, I should think of something really intelligent. But actually, I'm just going to go with something my best friend always says to me, <laughs> which is, don't let anyone dull your sparkle, Lucy. <laughs> and actually, I think that that's really important. I mean, that was her number one piece of advice when the, the, the you know, the breakup happened and she came running with a lasagna and her advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I actually think that for the work that I do, that's a really important kind of metaphor about, you know, even what you said, actually, about the performance and being a performer is about happiness and about joy. And it's really easy as a dancer to let um, circumstances or maybe feedback from one teacher or one kind of bitchy dancer take away from you what it is that you love so and she always says that to me um anytime that I'm kind of a bit fed up with someone and I just think actually that's really important because we all have that kind of thing that makes you you and what she really means is like don't ever change be who you are and yeah. stick with who you are and I think we all need to have that kind of yeah belief that we have our place and what how whatever other people might be bringing to us that we might think we're not worthy actually we absolutely are 
So mm. yeah, she's she's not quite a philosopher, but <laughs> hey, it's a very philosophical point, um, and I, I I really I do really agree with that. I think um, yeah, there there are a number of points there, but yeah, it's it's again I talk about this a lot on the podcast, but I think often we when things become a cliche and it's always a cliche that are oh, be yourself, like everyone always says that. And I think when something is a cliche, we immediately start to assume that it doesn't matter or it's not all that. We just, well, I, I do understand that, but I think it's really important to kind of, um, I don't want to, I can't think of a better word, but like meditate on it, really think about it and spend time. Like what is, the real you like what is it you actually want and what is it you actually need from people and what like you actually spend time doing that and and then you can you know, make those decisions based on what you value and that's something i've done recently is is sorry i'll, I'll stop speaking a second but i keep seeing you trying to trying to talk and then i'm, I'm keep going um but yeah something i've done recently is is working on those values and, and understanding like what it is i value in my relationships with people and also what is our value just in my general life and then trying to work on those and actually go towards those. Yeah. And I think the other really nice thing about that, about when I was thinking about this question is actually something about the person who said it as well, because it sounds like a cliche, but because of the nature of our relationship that I associate that feeling with her, actually for me, that, that, that that statement carries a lot because that's her telling me I think you sparkle like I think there's something special about you so I think you start often things are cliches and we see so much of it on social media things like that and I'm Ugh, disgusting <laughs> like what a horrible phrase but actually when you share things like that with people or when people do say a cliche to you it's really important to think actually just do they mean do they mean what they're saying do they actually really love me and care about me so yeah it can is for me actually has got I'm probably thinking about it way too much and she's just using a cliche but, but um yeah for me that actually carries quite a lot of weight because of you know my relationship with her and how she says it and what that's really saying about her feelings about me so yeah. and we don't do that enough we don't listen to what other people genuinely feel about us and that's kind of going back to my previous answer that's definitely something I've learned is that when someone is telling you that they value you you have to really take that on and not be like oh no why are you complimenting me or why are you telling me that I'm worth something and we could yeah. probably all get better at doing that yeah and it's I think it's something I don't I, th I think specifically British people we really struggle with the idea of being complimented and the idea of talking about things that we're proud of and and that you know, even even if we agree that we're awesome at that thing or that that it's true we still feel weird about it <laughs> um and yeah I have, I have yeah. lots of opinions about that but I think I think it's yeah I think we're all so scared of coming across as arrogant we won't even accept the things mm -hmm. that we know are real yeah absolutely yeah and it's it's sad isn't it and I think and it's interesting to hear that from a man because I think women really have that fear hugely have that fear that any time that they express that you know they're comfortable with themselves or that they think they might have a skill we're absolutely terrified of how that's going to be perceived um, that we might be told that we're manly or, you know, arrogant. I've been called all sorts of strange names that I think are strange because I'm, you know, I'm not frightened to put my hand up and say how I feel. But mm. it is definitely a British thing too, isn't it? Maybe I don't belong in Britain. I'll go to Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we both should just go to Sweden. We'll be fine. Much better. I look a bit Swedish. <laughs> you do, actually. You do. You do. Um, well, Lucy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today i hope you enjoyed yourself 
yeah i did it was great to chat to you thank you so much yeah, thank you um actually for the for the people who are listening at home where can they find you i will put links and stuff below so I have a website, um, which is www.thedancepsychologist.com. I'm on Twitter at Lucy Dance Psych, um, Lucy with an IE. My parents decided to get inventive with the spelling. Um, and then on Instagram, which is where I kind of mostly share my knowledge, it's at the Dance Psychologist on Instagram. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, everybody listening at home, thank you once again for making it through one of our podcasts. And I hope to see you at the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out MayaMinds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there and we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.